This is New Books in Science Fiction, a production of the New Books Network. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Golden Age of Science Fiction edition. I'm doing something unusual on the pod today. Instead of focusing on fiction like I usually do, today I'm going to interview an author about a nonfiction book. And the reason I wanted to break the template and talk about facts over fiction is that the book is a biography of someone whom Isaac Asimov once called the most powerful force in science fiction. The book we're going to talk about today is Astounding. John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction. Its main subject is John W. Campbell, who edited the magazine Astounding Science Fiction in the 40s and 50s, and he continued to edit it into the 1960s after its name changed to Analog Science Fiction and Fact. And the author of this Campbell biography is Alec Navala Lee. He is a novelist, short story writer, and now he's a biographer. And I'm really excited that he's on the line with me. Hey, Alec, how are you doing? Uh, Hey, Rob, I'm doing great. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Science Fiction. Oh, my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. I knew John W. Campbell's name mainly because it's on the award given out every year by the World Science Fiction Society. It's the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. And it always goes to an exciting new top shelf writer. Like this year, it was Rebecca Roanhorse who won the award, who, by the way, was a guest on the show in September. I think a lot of people, though, today, even science fiction fans, probably have no idea who Campbell was or even what the golden age of science fiction refers to. I think some might even say we're going through a golden age right now since science fiction is more popular than ever. At least I like to think it is. Anyway, I was wondering if you could take us back to Campbell in his heyday and explain what, in fact, was the golden age of science fiction what made it so golden, and what was Campbell's role in it? Uh, yeah, so this, this is a two-part question, obviously. Uh, you know, I can start with Campbell, uh, who is just, you know, an incredibly fascinating figure. Um, when I first started this project, I was actually shocked that there had never been a biography of um, Campbell before, because he is the ideal person to write a book about. Um, you know, he's influential, you know, controversial, you know, had this, you know, really interesting, complicated personal life. Um, so it was, it was a real pleasure for me to look into his story and kind of figure out, um, you know, why, uh, you know, his importance uh, to the genre uh, was so great. So whenever I talk about Campbell, one of the, one of the first things I mention is uh, his career as a writer. So he became the editor of the magazine called Astounding in uh, 1937, when he was 27 years old. But at that point, he was already one of the most uh, acclaimed science fiction writers of the 30s. And uh, the story he's probably best known uh, for is uh, a novella called Who Goes There, which has been adapted three times for the movies as The Thing. So if you're a fan of John Carpenter's The Thing, which I think is, you know, arguably the greatest horror movie of all time, uh, that's Campbell's story. You know, and that, that movie follows the beats of that original novella very closely. So you can, you can imagine sort of the impact it had, uh, you know, back when it first came out. But Campbell, you know, he became an editor, like I said, in his late 20s. And he, he basically stopped writing fiction at that point. He, he basically said that, you know, that, now that he was an editor, he had hundreds of writers working for him. And he would do things like pass out ideas for stories. He would give entire plots to writers. 
he would basically tell them, you know, the kinds of things that he wanted to be talking about in the magazine. And he developed this incredible circle of writers, including uh, Robert A. Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, L. Sprague de Camp, uh, Theodore Sturgeon, and L. Ron Hubbard, uh, you know, who, you know, were, were really there to kind of shape science fiction into what Campbell thought it would be. So uh, the period that the book tends to focus on uh, is, is conventionally known as the golden age of science fiction. All right, this is a descriptive term that a lot of people have used to talk about this period, which ran approximately from 1939 to 1950. And it's called the golden age for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that, you know, many of the writers like Asimov and Heinlein, who became mega famous later on uh, emerged in this period. And so when they talk about science fiction, they obviously tend to refer to the, the time in which their careers began as the golden age. But uh, it was legitimately important uh, in the way science fiction developed. Prior to Campbell, you know, science fiction was a pulp genre. You know, it was very popular. Um, it tended to appeal maybe to younger readers. And Campbell was the one who kind of oversaw its movement into the next stage where you had a generation of writers who had grown up reading science fiction when they were younger, and they start to kind of build on the discoveries of their predecessors. They start to refine the stories, the characters, and the science, and, you know, the genre just sort of naturally gets better. And Campbell was in the right place at the right time to kind of guide that process and, and kind of lay down the law about what science fiction was going to be about. And so his interests, his obsessions, and his prejudices really shaped, you know, what science fiction was going to be for the next few decades. It's fascinating to think of his relationship with these famous names of science fiction and what you just explained. It really struck me that he gave ideas to these writers because, you know, when you think of someone like Isaac Asimov, who is one of the most prolific and famous classic science fiction writers, you think of him coming up with all his own ideas, as, as I think most people think writers, fiction writers, generate their own ideas. But as you say, he, he handed ideas to writers and asked them to execute the stories. And I wonder if you could talk about that relationship he had with these writers. What was that like for them? Did some resent that relationship? I know they often credited him, as Asimov did with, for instance, having helped formulate the three laws of robotics, which played a huge role in Asimov's writing. But, you know, they've lived on as principles about artificial intelligence or robots in other people's stories. And Campbell also claimed credit for contributing to the development of Dianetics, I believe. Oh, yes. Which laid the groundwork for the Church of Scientology, which L. Ron Hubbard founded. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why I chose um, Asimov, Heinlein, and Hubbard as sort of the um, the secondary characters in this story were because they each illustrate a different side of Campbell and a way that Campbell worked with these writers. Um, and, uh, you know, and they had different responses to, to Campbell himself, who was, you know, a huge personality and inspired strong reactions from everyone he ever met. Um, so Asimov, for example, is like a really interesting case because when the, they first met, Asimov was not famous. He was, he was in college. Uh, he was a science fiction fan who wanted nothing more than to break into the magazines. And he actually sent Campbell the very first story that he ever wrote, which Campbell had turned down. But they started to meet uh, in New York. And, and you know, uh, Asimov would take the subway to Campbell's office every month and they would just sit down and talk. And after, you know, several more tries, Asimov finally breaks into the magazine when he's 19 years old. So he's very young, very impressionable, 
very eager. And Campbell kind of sees what he has here. This is a writer, a young man of like tremendous potential uh, who clearly wants to learn and wants to be published. So Campbell takes him on as kind of an experiment to see if he can develop a writer from scratch. And so, uh, as you said, you know, things like the three laws of robotics or the psychohistory of the foundation series, which are huge parts of, you know, both Asimov's career and the history of science fiction really came from Campbell, or at least from the conversations that they had during that time. And, and Asimov, you know, acknowledged this. He was very clear that he owed Campbell a lot and, you know, always made sure to credit him for the ideas that he contributed to uh, those stories. Someone like Heinlein is very different because Heinlein does not live in New York. He's older uh, than Asimov is. He's in his 30s by the time he contributes his first story. And he's already a major talent when uh, he, he sent his first story to Campbell. And the two of them, I mean, Campbell sees Heinlein, I would say, almost immediately as sort of the um, fulfillment of everything he's been trying to do in, in science fiction. Heinlein is the best writer he's ever seen. He's, he's obviously brilliant. He's got great ideas. He's a good writer. So the two of them like kind of become partners for a few years, uh, you know, mostly um, by corresponding. And, uh, you know, but again, you know, Campbell and Heinlein were both forceful personalities. And um, the fact they lived on opposite sides of the country, uh, I think, actually made it easier for them to collaborate for as long as they did, because I think they wouldn't have been able to um, work together if they'd been in the same room for long periods of time. They, they were that, you know, they were that big, uh, you know, in, in, in real life. And eventually they, they had this falling out. You know, they, they, they broke apart after, after about a decade. And, um, you know, Heinlein later on uh, denied that Campbell had played any part in his development as a writer. When, in fact, if you go back to their letters, you can see very clearly that Campbell did give him ideas. And, and they worked very closely together on, on some of these classic stories. But for Heinlein, you know, he, he didn't always want to acknowledge the extent of Campbell's influence on his work. And then Hubbard is like a whole other category. Uh, you know, Hubbard obviously is a very problematic figure. And, and, you know, I could go on about him for a long time. But the, the, the very short version is that he was a popular writer in uh, the naval adventure Western pulps who was basically kind of assigned to Campbell as, as someone uh, who could contribute, you know, good stories for the magazine, even though he didn't really have much of an interest in science fiction. And Campbell was pretty wary at first, but the two of them hit it off and they became good friends. Um, and, you know, I mean, Campbell thought incredibly highly of Hubbard as a writer, and, and so did uh, Heinlein and Asimov. Um, and Hubbard was an important part of that circle. He was definitely a major figure in, uh, you know, the science fiction community uh, at that time. And then later on, after World War II, you have this very interesting story where Hubbard approaches Campbell with this mental health therapy that he's developed. And Campbell kind of sees it as, uh, again, kind of a fulfillment of what he's been looking for. You know, he's been searching for, you know, what he called a scientific psychology that would, uh, you know, help save the world from uh, atomic war. And uh, so the two of them were partners in what became Dynetics. You know, Campbell and Hubbard, you know, worked together. They, they lived near each other, you know, uh, you know 1949, 1950. And, uh, you know, the ideas that came out of that collaboration, you know, Campbell played a huge part in shaping uh, how they were presented and, you know, sort of the underlying theory behind uh, Hubbard's therapy. And then, again, they kind of have this falling out. They, they, they break apart, you know, after about a year. And uh, Hubbard goes off on his own and, and found Scientology. But again, if you look at Scientology, 
uh, you know, sort of the basic ideas uh, that, that underlie, um, you know, how how therapy works and sort of the picture of the mind that Scientology embraces. A lot of that came as treat from Campbell. And just as an aside, have you gotten a lot of pushback from the Church of Scientology on your portrayal of Hubbard? I mean, he doesn't come off as the most admirable figure. He's he's a braggart, a liar often, and kind of unstable, actually. Right. No, I mean, you know, it's funny. I have not heard directly from the Church of Scientology. I have been in touch with many former Scientologists and, and critics of Scientology who have been very supportive, you know, of the project. And no, I mean, I, I doubt any Scientologist could read this book and, and, you know, come away pleased by its picture of Hubbard, who I think was a, you know, he was, he was a sociopath in his personal life. He, you know, caused a lot of pain to a lot of people. Um, I, I do try to kind of correct the story a little bit when it comes to his place in the history of science fiction, because he, his, his afterlife uh, is so complicated that's become very hard to acknowledge the fact that he was a popular writer. But I think if you go back to, uh, you know, again, like the letters and the the magazines and the memories of that period, it, it's pretty clear that he was thought of very highly by other writers and by fans. Um, and so I think, you know, while I wouldn't defend Hubbard's conduct or even most of his fiction, I do think that he's a, you know, he's a, an important figure who deserves to be restored to some extent to the history of science fiction during this time. Is it fair to say that Campbell was interested in a particular kind of science fiction, that he was less interested in the kind of science fiction we see a lot of today where people are exploring changes in culture and society and creating dystopias, and he was much more interested in scientific and technological advances and a vision of science fiction that was very... You know, it was about success and strong heroes and man kind of conquering for the good. Um, you're asking about Campbell? Yeah, I'm asking about Campbell. Um, you know, actually, I would argue the opposite in some ways. Uh, it's true that Campbell is associated with uh, this, you know, what we call hard science fiction. It's, it's science fiction that tends to focus on things like engineering and physics. Uh, and, and it's true that he, he definitely did pursue that. But at the same time, you know, when you talk about science fiction as being about cultural change, um, really, that was uh, Campbell's contribution as well. Uh, you know, if you look at stories like um, Asimov's Foundation series or Nightfall or Heinlein's Future History, uh, you know, these are stories about society. And, and Campbell is actually one of the very first editors uh, to say, you know, science fiction isn't just going to be about space travel. Uh, it's going to be about uh, sociology. It's going to be about psychology. It's going to be a way for us to work through problems of ethics and human behavior. And, um, you know, all that all that stuff, which I would argue is probably the way um, or the, the area in which science fiction has made its biggest impact on the mainstream. You see all that, you know, in the astounding science fiction of the 1940s. So I, I think Campbell actually deserves a lot of credit for what science fiction became. Well, I do know science fiction fans like to point to inventions in science fiction that sometimes inspire real-life technological developments. Uh, I have to say, though, I walked away from your book a little disillusioned after you describe how Campbell tried to take credit for anticipating the atomic bomb when that really wasn't exactly the case. Uh, you actually called it Campbell's most famous anecdote. Could you tell that story? 
Oh yeah, yeah. So this is this is a great story that's um, been retold, you know, within the science fiction community for decades. Um, but you know, the, what actually happened is is a little, little bit different from the version that you tend to hear. Um, so this is basically around 1943. Uh, we're obviously engaged in World War II, and Campbell has a certain vision of the role that science fiction is going to play. He, he does think that. Uh, you know, science fiction writers and editors, including himself, will have meaningful ideas for the war effort. This includes things like developing new kinds of weapons or, uh, you know, defense strategies or, um, you know, doing research in ways that would draw upon the uh, supposed uh, capacity for innovation that, that science fiction writers would have. Um, he tried very hard to, to do this. You know, uh, at, at the time, Heinlein was working at the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And Campbell just bombarded him with proposals for weapons and, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, technological solutions to, to problems uh, that would affect the war. And, and nothing really broke through. So he's frustrated about this. And he's also aware that um, the government is developing an atomic bomb. Uh, I think this is, you know, common knowledge among engineers and scientists during this period. And Campbell had studied physics as an undergraduate. And I think part of him thought that if he'd been born a few years later, he would have graduated right into the Manhattan Project. And so, you know, he feels kind of left out because he's been talking about nuclear power and atomic power in the magazine for years. And now that's actually happening. He's kind of on the outside looking in. So what happens is that um, there's a writer named Cleve Cartmill who uh, approaches Campbell um, with some ideas that Campbell doesn't really uh, want to use. And then Campbell pitches an idea to Cartmill uh, that's basically a story about the construction of an atomic bomb. And there are letters that he sent where he basically lays out the technological side in detail. And he, he you know, it's a very plausible version of, a, of an, an atomic bomb. And the story has no other reason for existing except to kind of get this information out into the magazine. It's not a very good story. It's, it's pretty disposable. Um, but it spends a lot of time describing how the bomb would actually work. And so Cartmill takes Campbell's notes and writes them up, and the story called Deadline is published in early 1944. And it actually triggers an investigation by the government after scientists at the Manhattan Project, many of whom were science fiction fans, read the story and, and talked about it at lunch. Uh, and so, you know, the counterintelligence corps is actually uh, worried that there could be a leak, uh, you know, from the Manhattan Project. And so they actually deploy some agents to go talk to Cartmill and Campbell to see where they got the idea for the story. And, and Campbell, you know, in some ways, I think he welcomed the attention. I think he liked the idea that he'd publish a story that the government took seriously enough to investigate. And, um, you know, I think maybe at the back of his mind, he was hoping that this would inspire, uh, you know, the government to bring him on in some kind of research role. Uh, that's not what happened. Uh, in fact, the magazine came very close to being shut down. Uh, and, um, you know, Campbell agreed to start censoring his stories more carefully going forward. But the important point is that, you know, Deadline did not actually predict anything. Campbell knew that there was a bomb project and there was enough information in the public domain for him to assemble a fairly plausible picture of how that bomb would work. And he put it out there on purpose to kind of attract the attention that, uh, you know, it, it eventually drew down. So what I say in the book is that, you know, he essentially orchestrates this anecdote so that after the war, after Hiroshima, he can point to the story and say, look, we saw this coming all along. But it was planned that way, you know, and, and I think a lot of fans were impressed. I think a lot of them said, yes, this is proof that science fiction, uh, you know, actually can predict the future. And I think that was actually a moment when the, the mainstream started taking science fiction more seriously. So you could say that, you know, it was a huge gamble that, um, that really paid off. 
Well, it's ironic for all his interest in actual science that Campbell also invested a lot of time and energy talking and writing about a lot of off-the-wall ideas and inventions that essentially amounted to quackery or pseudoscience. Yes. So this is actually something I find really fascinating because Campbell has this kind of split personality from the beginning. On the one hand, he's trained as a physicist. You know, he went to MIT and Duke and, you know, clearly takes the science side very seriously. But he also has this interesting mystical streak. You know, he's he's always been interested in ESP and paranormal powers. Um, and, and that dates back to the 30s. So, you know, that, that kind of that's always been there. And then it becomes much more pronounced uh, after um, the whole Dynetics uh, controversy, because Campbell's ultimate goal was always to make uh, a, a great discovery. He, he always thought that science fiction would produce something of, of real value in the real world. And for a while, he thought that Hubbard's ideas you know, were, were that great discovery. And when that didn't pan out, he kind of began to look around for other things he could explore. You know, and atomic power is kind of off the table because that's already been developed. So he decides to focus on uh, what he calls psionics, which are basically um, machines that can be used uh, to channel or to produce psychic effects, uh, paranormal effects. And so he publishes plans for uh, a machine in the magazine that he invites readers to construct at home. And he says, you know, this machine can detect mineral samples or it can, it can kill bugs or, you know, can do all kinds of things. We're not quite sure how it works, but, you know, you, you build it and you report back to me. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so for like, probably like five, ten years, you know, uh, Astounding and later Analog is dominated by pseudoscience. And, and he goes on from psionics to things like dowsing and astrology and these are all things that, um, you know, he wants to explore because he thinks that's where, you know, the next frontier is. You know, he wants he wants science fiction to, uh, you know, generate some kind of great discovery. And I think, you know, one of the tragic aspects of his career is that, you know, that desire really sidetracked him as an editor. And, and it led to Astounding and to Analog really falling behind other magazines because um, writers didn't want to work for Campbell anymore. I think we also have to talk about Campbell's prejudices. It kind of came as a shock to me, some of his very backward attitudes. I, I know contextually we're talking about the 30s, 40s, and 50s, but I think I was surprised. He bought a number of stories from women writers, but he certainly wasn't a feminist, and he didn't give women a chance to be heroes in the stories he published. And you write that he was clearly also racist, and had no qualms about claiming that blacks were inferior, that slavery was actually a learning opportunity for the oppressed. And he even argues with Isaac Asimov when Asimov told him he was against segregation. Uh, yes. So this is an aspect of Campbell's personality and, and work that is um, it's pretty horrifying. Um, so as far as women are concerned, I would say uh, Campbell welcomed women into the magazine. He was always very pleased when he found a writer who uh, who was a woman. Um, and so people like Lee Brackett and Catherine L. Moore and McCaffrey, you know, did great work for Campbell over the years. Uh, but for him, it wasn't a priority. You know, he, he, he wasn't someone who thought it was his job to diversify the range of voices in the magazine. And, and this becomes especially clear when it comes to race. So it, it's kind of like, again, there, there are like two sides to, to this. One is Campbell's 
personal views, which he expressed in public and in the magazine, editorials and his letters and conversation. And, and they were clearly racist. He, he, you know, believed that, uh, you know, like the bell curves for intelligence were different for blacks than they were for whites. Um, and, uh, you know, he... He wasn't just being contrarian, you know. He he talked about this repeatedly, and, and you know, uh, there there are letters and editorials that are incredibly painful to read today. Um, so that's undeniable. I think I think that's that's a major part of his legacy. And, and the real question for me is how does this affect the fiction he published in the magazine? And um, you know, he did not see diversity as something that um, was important. Uh, he uh, was quite content to kind of um, keep publishing stories by writers who looked like him. And, you know, you could say that, um, and, and also I should mention the characters were almost all white. You know, even if the, the races weren't specified in the story itself, you know, in the illustrations for decades, you know, these were clearly mostly white men. Um, and Campbell thought that maybe, you know, like black writers weren't interested in writing science fiction or they weren't good at it, you know, and it never seems to have occurred to him that, you know, they uh, might be more interested in writing for uh, his magazine if they saw characters who look like them. Um, and he, uh, you know, I mean, what I always say here is that um, Campbell, you know, I've heard people say that maybe, you know, he simply reflected the values of his time, which I don't, I don't think is actually true. I think he was actually more racist in some ways than even was typical of that era. But more importantly, you know, Campbell is someone who wants to be seen as a man of the future, right? He, he's being asked to be judged by the highest possible standard, which is that of a man who can, you know, kind of tell humanity where it's going, you know, and, and kind of, you know, what to expect. Um, you know, he's saying that science fiction is about uh, cultural change. It's about having a dialogue about cultural change. And it never seems to have occurred to him that, you know, maybe diversifying the range of voices to include writers who have been directly impacted by cultural change would, would be a good idea. Uh, he wants to generate those ideas. Um, so I think, you know, the lack of diversity and astounding certainly um, was, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a big part of his legacy, and um, I think he bears part of the blame for, you know, the lack of diversity in science fiction for, for many of those years. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think there's a version of Campbell who could have said that we're going to make this a priority uh, to, you know, diversify our, our, our writers, um, and that would have been totally consistent with everything that he believed about what science fiction was or was supposed to accomplish, but he never did. And I think it's actually very sad. And even during the civil rights movement, you know, when it was in full swing and race was the subject on the mind of the whole nation, he he kind of dug in his heels, it sounds like, and became even more expressive in his racism. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think Campbell always saw himself as a contrarian. Um, which isn't to say that these weren't his actual beliefs. I think I think it's pretty clear they were. But, you know, there, there is part of him that is, you know, pushing back against the progressive tendencies of many of his readers or even his writers like Asimov, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it also made it very hard for him to take part in those debates, you know. So we're talking about a man who has talked for decades about cultural change. And, you know, in the 1960s, it's happening in real life. You know, the, these upheavals that he's prophesized are actually occurring, and he really can't be part of that conversation because he's um, he's closed himself off so completely from, you know, the, the writers and fans who actually might have something to say to him about it. So, 
Um, yeah, no, I think the last 10 years of his life are, are very sad. And, it, and it's, it's largely because, um, you know, he, he dug in and kind of refused to be a part of that conversation. It's just hard for me to get my mind around the idea of someone who is a visionary, at least in some aspects of their worldview, but is so backward and has such hateful views as well and doesn't use his power for the good, at least as a magazine editor, when he could, in fact, engage in that national conversation about race and try to change people's minds for the better, presumably, by writing stories that represent race and diverse people in positive and affirmative ways. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Campbell is a very complicated person. Um, and it's true, you know, he was he was radically unorthodox in certain ways. And very reactionary and conservative in others. And, um, you know, it, it was actually a, a big challenge for me to try to reconcile those different sides of him. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think even at the time, um, you know, people like Asimov said to him, you know, you've come out on the side of so many strange causes like Dianetics and sonics and dowsing, you know, and, and you have to, to realize that, you know, like the, the struggle for civil rights is, you know, these are the underdogs, you know, these are the contrarians, these are the people who are trying to, to change the system. You know, Campbell is someone who allegedly has spent his entire career trying to challenge orthodoxy. And when it came down to it, there were certain systems uh, like capitalism, uh, for example, that, uh, you know, he just wasn't that interested in interrogating. I wonder if given his biases, at least as we know about them today, you know, has there ever been talk of removing his name from awards? With science fiction's strides to become more diverse and more accepting, I just wonder if there's been any conversation about that that you're aware of. Uh, well, you know, number one, I'm actually really happy you asked that question because you're the first person to bring it up. And it's something I've thought about a lot. Um, so, so the big sort of... Uh, Example here that, that I've thought about is um, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Award, um, which was renamed uh, this summer um, right. because of, uh, you know, people's, uh, you know, because of some of the attitudes that, that Wilder expresses in her fiction. Against Native Americans, mainly, if I remember right. That, that's right. That's right. Um, and, you know, that, that debate has not yet extended to things like the John W. Campbell Award which I think is a legitimate discussion that um, I expect will happen eventually because Campbell's views on race were far, you know, more offensive than, I mean, in my opinion, than anything Wilder uh, expressed. And especially if you look at the kind of people who are winning the Campbell Award and you look at, you know, Campbell's views on race and other, other, other matters, you know, it, it is, it's, it's very striking. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to say that I would support that change, but I would not object to it because I think, um, you know, it's a conversation that we haven't had yet. Um, but I, I, I really hope it happens because I think it's important to talk about these things. Well, I encourage people to turn to your book around page 360 or so for a lots of evidence to fuel the conversation. So maybe your book will be the spark that will at least create some talk about this, some awareness about uh, his his legacy or his mixed legacy, I suppose you could say. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I absolutely hope that happens, and, and that's a big part of the reason why I wrote the book. Um, you know, and it's funny because in some ways I'm introducing Campbell to people for the first time, while also trying to show the 
uh, dark side or the the you know the the problematic side of his legacy. So um, it was it was kind of like a fine line I had to walk. Uh, but you know, I, I tried to present the the facts and sort of my uh, understanding of his career as objectively as I could. Were there any facts that surprised you in your research? And your research is clearly extensive. There's a lot of citations in the back of the book to support your research. You obviously read all his correspondence, and there's, it sounds like there's an incredible written record of Campbell's life and his, his inner thoughts, not to mention what was in the magazines and his editorials. So bravo for that. You did, you did an amazing amount of work, and I, I, you must have encountered all kinds of things that, that surprised you or made you rethink something you thought you knew. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, number one, thank you. Uh, You know, the research for this book was just really fun um, because there are things that no one's ever really looked at before or or haven't looked at in a long time. And, um, you know, I just kind of went through the primary sources I had available, letters and magazines and memoirs. And yeah, you're right. There there was stuff there that really surprised me. Um, So I'll I'll give two examples. When, When it comes to Hubbard, People love to kind of talk about Scientology's space opera elements. So, you know, this is stuff that uh, until a few decades ago was only taught to um, people who had paid to reach the highest levels of uh, the Church of Scientology. Right. It, it cost money to, to proceed, you know, through each stage of the church's teaching. And at the end, you realize or you're told that, um, you know, millions of years ago, there was a galactic uh, dictator named Zenu. And, you know, there's this like massive uh, piece of, you know, of storytelling basically about Zenu. And, uh, you know, now it's common knowledge. And I think, you know, it's 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 pretty widely known. So, you know, people associate uh, Scientology with this sort of uh, science fiction background. But what really surprised me was the fact that uh, Hubbard himself was not a science fiction fan. You know, he hadn't written science fiction at all until he got assigned to Campbell. And he, he didn't like it. You know, he really enjoyed writing fantasy, you know, and some of those stories are pretty good. But, you know, he, he didn't write any good science fiction, you know, for a long time. And, um, you know, didn't seem to have much of an interest in science fiction. So the question is, why is science fiction all over the secret teaching to the Church of Scientology? And uh, I think the answer is that, you know, after Hubbard and Campbell split off uh, or, you know, Hubbard goes off on his own, the only people that he has uh, around him, his followers, are science fiction fans. You know, these are people who had mostly heard about his work through Astounding. And so when he starts to talk to those people and to tailor his teachings to the audience that he has available, you know, he naturally starts to incorporate science fiction elements. And many of them are, are ideas or images that I think his followers give to him because they're being audited. They're going into these supposedly like past life experiences. And, you know, these are people that have read science fiction, you know, for years. And so a lot of these past life memories are going to have elements of space opera in them. So Hubbard kind of takes all this stuff and, and beats it back to them in an, an amplified form. And, um, you know, so th- that's the answer. You know, he, he did not personally enjoy writing a science fiction, but uh, he knew that his followers did, or, you know, that his followers uh, would respond to that material. Um, and that to me was like really surprising because, you know, you, you think of Hubbard in a certain way, but in reality, it was, it was the opposite. Um, the other really cool thing I, I just kind of want to mention, and it's, it's you know, uh, just something I think is kind of cool, is I mentioned Who Goes There, uh, which is uh, the story that was later adapted into the movie The Thing. And I was going through Campbell's papers 
at Harvard, and I found the original draft of Who Goes There, which was a much longer story called Frozen Hell, which is nearly twice the length of the published version, and has a ton of material that um, nobody's ever read that's really good, you know, uh, it's kind of like the backstory to the version that we, we have. And um, I actually sent it to Campbell's family, and it's being published. So I just want to quickly plug it. I don't have a direct financial incentive here, but um, I think it's really interesting. And if you go on Kickstarter, you can actually find a link uh, you know, to that, that project, uh, which I think is coming out early next year. A final note, I, I was surprised how young some of these figures were when they died. And clearly it had a lot to do with their lifestyles of smoking and drinking and whatever. And I, I thought it was sort of ironic that their visions didn't include a vision for what smoking can do or how we would envision in the future what a healthy lifestyle is. Yeah, well, so Campbell had died when he was 61. All right, which is which is very young, I think. I think he could easily have gone on to edit the magazine for another ten years, um, and uh, you know, and and who knows where they might have gone after that. Uh, although, frankly, like the quality of the magazine had been declining for a long time, so I'm not sure we're we're missing out on that many great stories. But that said, you know, he died young, and uh, yeah, and he was very sick toward the end of his life. Uh, he had gout, he had hypertension. And uh, a lot of this was because of smoking. He, he smoked and smoked for, you know, most of his life. And the funny thing is that, uh, you know, I mean, Campbell, you know, I mean, right now we, we hear a lot about, you know, what's called the transhumanist movement, the idea that uh, given the the pace of uh, scientific and medical uh, development that, you know, there are people alive right now who will never have to die. And you see those ideas in Campbell's editorials starting in like the mid 40s. You know, Campbell, uh, I think, for a long time, thought that he just wasn't going to die. In the face of all evidence to the contrary, uh, he kept smoking. And um, even after he began to suffer those uh, the health effects, you know, he, he insisted that uh, he was fine. Um, so uh, it's another example of sort of how highly rational uh, attitudes can, co- can coexist, you know, in, in the same person's personality as highly irrational impulses, which I think is maybe one of the the central themes of this whole book. And one final question. Did Isaac Asimov really write over 400 books? Uh, Okay, so so Asimov was, you know, I think the most prolific writer in American history um, by by most measures. Um, And he, I mean, we haven't even talked about him. he's, He's such a good, interesting figure. He was certainly productive, that number, 400 books, uh, includes things like anthologies that he edited or, you know, wrote introductions to, uh, which, in fact, probably represent a fairly small amount of work. And I think toward the end, it was important to him to kind of inflate that book count for its own sake. I, th- I think he knew that he was going to be known for his productivity. And so he was he was very generous, let's, let's put it that way, uh, in terms of deciding what books to, to include. But that said, I mean, he was monstrously productive. And, you know, he was the kind of person who uh, was kind of made to be the kind of person who would write several hundred books because he loved to write. He loved solitude. He didn't like to travel. He hated to fly. You know, he just wanted to kind of stay in his office. And, and, and you know, he was a fluent writer and, you know, like a, like a, like a good stylist. And so if you wanted to build, you know, the ideal writer who would be able to produce that many books, it would be Isaac Asimov. Unlike a lot of science fiction writers, he was a true scientist. He had a PhD. He he really knew his stuff. 
Yes, yeah. So, so Asimov, you know, uh, was a professor of biochemistry, and uh, you know, absolutely, you know, wrote some of the best popular science books of that time, you know, on, on a, a range of subjects. So, you know, for him, a scientific accuracy was very important. And so this actually uh, ties into what happened with him and Campbell. I mean, they, they obviously became estranged after a certain point over Campbell's racial views. But Asimov was also deeply turned off by Campbell's obsession with psionics and psychic powers and, and the paranormal. And I think, uh, you know, he was naturally a rational person. And I think for him, it was very painful because he always saw Campbell as his intellectual father. You know, he, he said until the end of his life that he owed everything to Campbell. But um, I would say, you know, starting in like the mid 50s, it just became impossible for the two of them, uh, you know, to agree on a lot of things. And I think that's uh, that's one of the saddest parts of the story. Well, Alec, thank you so much for for writing this book and putting a spotlight on John W. Campbell's contributions to science fiction. And thank you most of all for coming on New Books in Science Fiction. Oh, thank you. I had a great time. You had some great questions. So um, thank you very much. I've been talking with Alec Navala Lee about his biography of John W. Campbell Jr. The full title of the book is Astounding. John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction. It was published by Day Street, which is an imprint of William Morrow, and it came out just last month in October. Please subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction. And please leave a review in the Apple Store, wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And the editor is Leanne Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. You can find me at robwolf.net. And thank you so much for listening.